0: When we think of the foundations of a free and open society, the Scottish Enlightenment and the Anglosphere come to mind. Free markets, separation of powers, and liberal conceptions of representative government are the proud contributions of the English-speaking world, taking their roots in England and seeing implementation in countries such as the United States, Canada, Australia, and so on. It is the Anglosphere that is the father of liberty. Paul Schweneson says, hold on, don't forget the Spanish. Welcome to the AIER Standard. I'm Ethan Yang. Paul Schwundesen is an AIER graduate fellow joining us here today at our headquarters in Great Barrington. He received his bachelor's in history and science from the Air Force Academy, a master's in government from Harvard, and is currently pursuing his PhD in Spanish history from the University of Kansas. Paul, welcome to the show. Thank you, appreciate it very much. So you do make a very provocative assertion, right? You say um, the Spanish actually do have deep liberal roots. They have uh, many contributions to add to liberty. And I guess I'll be speaking to you as sort of, you know, a a layman in a sense, like the most Spanish history I know is from uh, middle school history class. You know, the only things I can name when I think of the Spanish are uh, Spanish Inquisition, you know, the galleons that brought gold from the from the Americas, that kind of stuff, Christopher Columbus, maybe, or I think he's Italian, but he went to Spain or something (laughs) like that. (laughs) Um, So when you make this assertion, right, most people probably think of England uh, when it comes to the origins of liberty. What is your, what is your quick response to the Spanish case for liberty?
1: Yeah, I'm not making the case that the Spanish had, had, uh, entirely invented and floresced what we now call the liberal project. But what I am saying is, is those of us within the liberal project should perhaps be more attentive to the deeper sort of Iberian roots of what we now consider the, you know, the, the enlightenment and, and much of what we now consider liberal tradition. Um, for instance, uh, Locke is often called the father in the Enlightenment, um, but he was cribbing his notes directly from Spinoza, who himself was was actually a a Sephardic Jew living in in Spanish Netherlands. The Netherlands at that time were were Spain, um, and on and on. And and it's not again. This is this is not some earth shattering discovery or anything. Um, it's just it's more of a gentle reminder for mm-hmm. those of us within the, within the tradition of what sort of our, our deep heritage actually is. Where where these ideas come from, how they began to evolve and to and to form into what we now consider, you know, the sort of uh, the modern world, the modern era, specifically as it relates to liberalism.
0: Mm. And you mentioned the Dutch Republic, and I remember Deirdre McCloskey talks about this a lot, like the whole, um, the Dutch Golden Age came about when they essentially broke off from the Spanish Empire, I believe, in getting my history right. So what, what do you, th- what, what sort of relationship do you think that has in the sense like the Spanish being um, the empire, kind of like the oppressor and the Dutch, like having like the, these liberal ideas coming from the Dutch golden age and that sort of, is there any sort of relationship with the Spanish empire or is it something, is it completely unrelated?
1: No, they're, they're very related. Um, to give an example, one of the primary examples is that uh, Carlos Cinco, who is, it was sort of the, the first major Spanish emperor. And he was the one sort of at the helm immediately, immediately after the first discovery of the Americas. And he's the one who's sort of leading leading from the crown perspective the sort of expansion of the imperial project into, into uh, New Spain and, and North America, South America. Um, Carlos Cinco himself was actually born in Gent in, in what is now the Netherlands. Uh, he spoke Flemish before he became king of Spain, never really spoke Spanish particularly well. He was in his mid-20s when he became emperor of Spain and adopting the Habsburg throne. Um, all these sort of things, you know, controvert what we think we know of, or, you know, the simplistic version of Spanish history. Like, we just assume the Spanish is this monolithic block and it's in the Iberian Peninsula. It was the old man of Europe after, you know, and so forth. Mm-hmm. So we have all these these myths that I've, I've had quite a bit of fun sort of sort of busting mm-hmm. over the last few years. And one of those one of those myths is is along the lines of what you just mentioned about the Spanish Inquisition, we consider in, in sort of the Monty Python sense, <laughs> you know, the Inquisition is the epitome of the state gone horribly, horribly wrong. Right. This is mm-hmm. this is this is the worst of all possible worlds when you have, mm-hmm. you know, religious authorities, ecclesiastic authorities, you know, you know, paired and twined with the power of the state. And they're burning people the stake because you know, mm-hmm. they, they don't hew to the right doctrine. And and this is also a, a myth, um, or at least largely a myth. It doesn't say that the Spanish Inquisition didn't do some terrible things. Um, but the deeper you dive into these sorts of topics, you realize, for instance, the Spanish Inquisition can, can very plausibly be said to have saved untold thousands of people mm. um, from the sort of vigilante extremism of sort of emerging late medieval Europe. When the idea of burning the local witch, you know, under sort of uh, like the like a like a riot scenario, was absolutely the norm, mm-hmm. the Spanish Inquisition actually came about in order to try to stifle those mm-hmm. very activities and to try to bring some sense of rule of law into these proceedings, a way to adjudicate with careful assessment and, and bringing evidence and so forth to the table, so that no one was unjustly killed mm. um again so so again this is just another example of sort of con- controverting what we think we know about the spanish mm.
0: and obviously i don't know too much about spanish history so from my perspective that just almost sounds like revisionist right yeah um but what you're saying is that of course the inquisition was a bad thing but what it was trying to do was almost just like a rep it was just trying to uh, be almost like a representation of the popular will try to control it maybe bring it under uh, a little bit more process. Like, obviously, it wasn't a good thing, but it's be- it was better than it, it understood that a lot of people just wanted to do it anyway. So it said, hold up, let's actually let's actually have some sort of process, some sort of order um, if you're actually going to do that. So it was almost like a moderating force in a way.
1: Yeah, I think I think it's fair to say that, uh, or at least certainly it's an arguable and defendable position, which which again sort of sort of challenges our presuppositions about what we think we know about the Spanish Empire. And so you mentioned revisionist. I mean, that's one way to put it. I think, I think I like to think of myself as more of a synthetic historian in the sense that you have sort of a, 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 a thesis, antithesis, and then a synthesis that tries to you know, make that pendulum fall into the middle on what the real sort of more, more formal truth, quote-unquote, of history actually is. Um, to give you, you know, partic- this, this comes particularly to the fore in, in the sense of the way the Spanish conquered the Americas. Um, it's become ever more evident to me since getting into this topic, since I specifically focus on the conquest period, is that, you know, in the in the 1890s, uh, most ang- English speakers and probably everybody around the world sort of sort of pictured the conquest as this great triumphant moment, mm-hmm. right? It was a banners unfurled moment. It was the victorious, the the knights in shining armor kind of kind of history, um, and that that wasn't entirely true. In fact, I would say it's not even not even, not even remotely true. Mm-hmm. Followed by like maybe the 1990s, a century later, you had the opposite. This pendulum is swung the other direction. History now is in its antithesis phase that said, no, 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 the conquerors were nothing but horrible demons only interested in rape and pillage and, and, and gold. I mean, that's also not true, mm-hmm. right? The, the, the more nuanced synthetic position on this is to say, no, let's try to rescue human beings. With all their dignity intact, from the sort of, uh, I think Habermas puts it. He says this, this sort of uh, uh, there's a, there's a phrase he uses uh, the sort of uh, basically the dustbin of history. That's mm-hmm. not exactly what he said. He said more elegantly, but, but that's effectively that what I'm trying to do: is rescue you know real living human beings with their complex motives from the sort of ash heap of history that says. The conquerors had their faults. Don't get me wrong; no one's trying to whitewash the conquest. Um, but the Indians weren't these passive, childish victims mm-hmm. either. And I find it—I find it somewhat offensive to assume that they were. Mm-hmm. Right? They're—they're they're vigorous, living, adult human beings, capable mm-hmm. of defending their own liberties. And the, and the Spanish, for their part, had their complicated motives as well. Often, they're our the harshest critics. Mm-hmm. Um, often. Very much uh, fighting each other on whether or not the conquest was a good idea. Mm. So that's just an example of of the sort of uh, tension
0: inherent in Spanish history today. Mm. And in a way, so you're you're framing the conquest, and it's very similar to maybe how America went about in the Middle East trying to spread democracy, quote unquote. I believe it was either Tocqueville or was it John Locke who spoke very, um, let's put it unfavorably of uh, indigenous peoples when it came to, you know, it's basically the similar argument is that, um, our English tradition of rule of law and order and prosperity is, you know, it's better than what they have going on over there in, in the little tribal lands. And we're gonna go in and save them or like, they're just, you no know, these are, this is like a fundamentally worse civilization. We're going to save them. Right. It's a similar, it's a similar impulse. Obviously we're not excusing it. We're not saying this is a good thing. We're just saying it did come from at least, at least like a, a variation of, of, uh, good intentions.
1: Yeah, I think that's I think that's fair. Um, and again, I am I, trying to seek some nuance in these positions. Um, I'll, I'll read you a couple of quotes and, and, and see what you think. I'm going to read you a quote and you, and you tell me sort of roughly where you think it might have come from. Um, and I'm actually I'm actually redacting a couple of words because mm. otherwise I'll give it away. But it, here's here's one. It says liberty is one of the most precious gifts given by heaven to mankind. To her, neither the treasures in the earth nor those in the sea can compare.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It sounds like one of the, I mean, do you want to give it a guess?
0: I mean, it sounds like, you know, like someone from Scotland or something, like, you know, Scottish Enlightenment type of stuff.
1: Yeah, it sounds a little bit, maybe, maybe even Jefferson. Like Thomas sort of Paine or something. Yeah, Thomas yeah. Paine, Thomas Jefferson, you know, writing in maybe the 1770s or something. Um, but in fact, it's, it's Miguel de Cervantes. who's mm-hmm. writing in 1616. This is before Locke is, I think, even born, or certainly before he's, he's really publishing anything. Um, and Miguel Cervantes, the reason he, and he actually, this is in Don Quixote, he's really, the reason we know these quotes is because they were abundantly popular in their time. And and it's it's just an indication that when Cervantes was writing in the, in he's he actually writing in the late 16th century, He wasn't published until the early 17th. But, but when he's writing and publishing, he finds an audience, he finds a very receptive audience. You know, it's not as if he was just some you know, lone voice in the dark writing these words about liberty and individuality and so forth, people understood what that meant. They, mm-hmm. they were, they were keen and they were prepared to understand and accept that kind of a sentiment. Right. Um, and Cervantes himself is, is an interesting character. I mean, he spent five years enslaved by the Ottoman Turks. And when he talks about liberty being precious, <laughs> mm-hmm. he's not talking about an abstraction. Mm-hmm. He knows what it means. And you see, so you see this idea of, of human dignity, human liberty, being transferred into the, into the larger Iberian society of its time in the context of the conquering of the new world as mm. well. and so You see this very strong division, I, I would say, between, within Spanish society that I think we can still even feel today, even though when we look back at, at Spanish in the 16th century, we just, we just monolithically assume they're all you know sort of anti-liberal. Mm-hmm. But in fact, that's not true, uh, particularly within the ecclesiastic sector which is also what gives rise to the Inquisition, you see this very, very vigorous political campaign to ensure that there are specific rights given to Indians as they encounter them. I mean, mm-hmm. you have to put them, yourself in their shoes. they have encountered this entire universe they hadn't expected to find. They mm-hmm. found an entire new people they hadn't expected to find. And now, obviously, they're, they're in the early modern period, and they're trying to incorporate this within the context of their Catholic worldview. Um, so they're, they're very intent on saving souls, and they had millenarian views about the end of the world, and the more souls they could save, the better. All that aside, they, they meant it when they said the Indians had rights. Mm-hmm. And, you know, sort of, sort of uh, in, embodied within the, the, uh, the political movement of Bartolomé de las Casas, who was a famous advocate for Indian rights, very vigorously campaigning with the crown to say we must behave better. Hmm. We cannot allow these conquistadors to just to do whatever they want. We must constrain them. There must be rights accorded to all native peoples. Their land should be respected. Their bodies should be respected. And frankly, their liberty should be respected. And it's not just a, you know, it's not a peanut gallery kind of Hmm. kind of movement. It's a very vigorous campaign. It's it's quite startlingly effective. And I'll read some other quotes later on that actually prove this, uh, I think, over and over again. So uh, I find that interesting.
0: Hmm. And I think that goes to a larger point about um, just how liberal or authoritarian governments or societies come to be. It's not necessarily because that society was an inherently authoritarian or inherently liberal. It's just that for one reason or another, one side happened to win, the other side lost, and the rest is history. I think uh, Frank Fukuyama talks about this a lot when he's talking about like the, the elections in the Middle East, especially the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt. He's like, Egypt is not necessarily just... Inherently, like authoritarian, it's just like there was a great democracy movement; they just lost, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so every society, in a way, has these liberal components, and I guess history is determined by who, dis- by you know, who, dis- who maneuvers better, who wins the election or wins the war, what have you.
1: Yeah, I'm afraid you're right, I, and I, I don't think anyone could dispute that. I, I was actually just reading before this began about uh, one of the one of the ecclesiastics within the School of Salamanca, which is integral to the sort of trajectory of liberal thought. The School of Salamak was, was founded in the 1520s, I believe. Um, so they were right there at the beginning. And, and they're a very, very vigorous campaigner for conceptions of natural law, um, about, oddly enough, about economics. They're talking about usury and about the proper price mm. and just, you know, price theories and all these things that we now think were, weren't invented, you know, until 200 years later. Um, but but they're, they're very aware of the... Of the importance of limited government, they're very aware of the importance of constraining states. But one of the primary names in this, beyond Francisco Vitoria, who's the famous famous leader of the school, was one of his acolytes named Domingo de Soto, mm-hmm. which is interesting compared. And I, I can't find any relation to Hernando de Soto, who was the famous conquistador of, of Florida. Um, but they, those two couldn't be farther apart. Mm. And Domingo de Soto is writing about price theory. He's writing about human rights and 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 uh, limited limited uh, government and rule of law. Mm-hmm. If you try to Google him compared to Hernando de Soto, who was the co- conqueror of Florida, you are going to find one, you know, one entry for every hundred about mm. the conquistador. Right. Mm-hmm. So it does. So it it, it, it makes your point mm-hmm. that unfortunately, unfortunately, it's the. In the tension between liberals and, you know, those who, you know, who wield power unjustly, it seems to be the latter that gets all the attention.
0: hmm And just a similar point, uh, China has a tradition called Taoism and dating back before, you know, in the like multiple B.C.'s back, um, there's a guy named Lao Tzu and who basically mm-hmm. said, you know, he's one of the earliest espousers of liberty and a lot of uh, liberal and thinkers.
1: paper too, right? Does that recall?
0: Um I am not sure. know. I think, was, that. I think we'll go Sumerians go that. <laughs> that, yeah, I don't know who invented paper. That might have been like the Han Dynasty or something. Yeah. This is way back. I mean, he he was basically quoted in Chinese, obviously, paraphrasing, but like the more regulations, the more laws, the more criminals, and essentially you know, essentially speaking out against prohibition. Um and China obviously had multiple different traditions. There's Taoism on the one hand and legalism and Confucianism on the more authoritarian side. Mm-hmm. And obviously China today hasn't hasn't ever been a liberal society for a minute. But, you know, it does have those roots dating back. And I guess for a hot second after the fall of the Qing dynasty, there was a a quote unquote Republic obviously didn't last too long because the guy in charge decided to call himself an emperor again. But, you know, but that's the thing like there were these impulses that existed even in places like China. Um, they just, you know, it just didn't turn out the same way America turned out or England turned out.
1: Right, right. No, it's it's a tension that's clearly this is not a new tension. And you know we see it we see it in BC we see it during the Spanish Empire we see it today, um, and I think that's a, that's why if, if if there's any questions about what I'm doing is of any relevance I think it is important to know it's important to understand the roots of the liberal project uh, because it may have some relevance for how we how we move forward today I mean frankly you know post Enlightenment I think you know the the liberal flourishing is is on the ascendancy. Mm-hmm. But that's, not, that's not a foregone conclusion, mm. historically speaking. In fact, it seems to be the anomaly. Mm. And the question is, how do we maintain this anomaly? And mm-hmm. um, maybe understanding that some of those deep roots may help us to answer those questions. Um, but yeah, I, I've, act, I've got some, some quotes that I think might point to this. Um, I'll read them just, just because. There, again, going back to this sort of tension between the state and the church, um, at, this, at this stage in the 16th century, they are pretty well entwined, of course. Um, there's clearly no division of church and state, and nor was, no, nor was there really any intent to, to be one. Um, nevertheless, the ecclesiastics thought differently than the secular authorities, and they were advocating very strongly that the secular authorities, in the context of the New World, be very, very clear in ordering the conquistadors and these sort of semi-private expeditions to behave according to standards of what they called moral and just law, right? So here, an example. This is this is the crown writing in 1537. It's a cellula, or sort of like a uh, uh, an order or a uh, or a like a permission slip for a conquest. Um, and this is the crown writing to De Soto saying, "And we, having been informed of the evils and disorders which occur in making discoveries and new settlements, so in other words, the crown has has heard of what's going on in the New World. It doesn't like it." right? Mm-hmm. For the redress thereof, and that we may be enabled to give you license to make them, a general provision of chapters is ordained and dispatched, respecting what you will have to observe in the said settlement and conquest. Okay, so basically saying you need to follow rules that are being adjudicated by the state. Now, this is somewhat anti-liberal, but, mm. <laughs> you know, I'm you sort of turn pretzels on this topic, right? This is the state telling people you must be more liberal, mm-hmm. right, when it comes to mm. the expansion of, of Spain's Um, patrimony into the new world. Coronado gets a very similar letter from the king. This this time it's actually from the viceroy, the the viceroy Mendoza in New Spain and was now Mexico. Says, in regard to treatment of the native Indians of the lands through which you may travel, we order you to observe and fulfill the directive for benevolent treatment which we have ordered given to the persons who go as you are going to reconnoiter and pacify lands and new provincias. So again, the you see this over and over again of this insistence by the crown that you must respect indian rights there's even and the the conquistadors to their you know on on their behalf are often very eager to explain to the crown in their sort of reports that we didn't take even so much as a single ear of corn from indians without proper payment for it Mm -hmm. now that doesn't mean that always they always followed that law that the letter of the law but that's what they were attempting to uphold Mm. right and this is again this is in contrast to what I think the simple narrative about conquest is.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Like it would I think in a Man on the Street interview, most people would not would be pretty surprised to hear that the con that the conquistadors were eager to indicate to their authorities that they were paying for every single mm-hmm. ear of corn and kernel of corn from Indians. Mm. So it's just something you know it's thought provoking kind of topic.
0: I guess also in a way Uh, people like to just people love a romantic story they like you know conquest brutality on the one hand or just like love and freedom on the other but in many ways especially when it comes to paying for the corn i just kind of sound like i guess it almost sounds like common sense from a managerial perspective and i guess liberal ideas in a way are almost like common sense. It's like they're just used to make sure society runs properly you know like you've used prices not because you just love price theory. Of right. course, maybe we do. But, right, right. you know, I'm sure like, a like Lenin, for example, actually introduced prices in the Soviet Union uh, to save off a famine. Like, why? Not because he was a liberal, because he was just like, well, like, we kind of need these prices to make sure the resources alloc- are allocated properly. I'm mm-hmm. sure mm-hmm. Uh, the monarch in this sense is new that, you know, if you're going to, if you want to have a good relationship with the people in America, you better be paying for your stuff and making sure to all checks out co- correctly. So I guess it, it kind of shows like these liberal impulses kind of come from almost like you don't really need like a deep philosophical foundation. It's more like just rooted in common sense in a way.
1: Yeah, I think, I think that's true. I I like that actually, you know, this goes back to this sort of Jeffersonian concept of, of these, these are sort of inscriptions within our heart, right? Mm -hmm. It's not, we don't have to engage in some deep, you know, elite kind of navel gazing to understand the abstract theories of, of liberal. This just comes naturally. The difficulty is actually seeing it, you know, Expand and Mm. actually be practiced in the face of state controls, which generally tend to, you know, very effectively stifle Mm -hmm. those inherent instincts. Um, And I think that's actually a good segue. You get you get some sense of this. I wouldn't quite call it a contradiction, but that, but it's a bit of a contradiction, in the sense that old world Europeans are coming to the new world. They're in a position of Often technical superiority, but not always. In fact, that that side of it has been overplayed historically. Almost always coming at it from an antibodies position of superiority. I mean, mm-hmm. upwards of ninety percent of Native America was wiped out by mm-hmm. by zoonotic disease. Mm-hmm. Um, but but when it comes to liberty, and this goes back to your comment early about John Locke um, and thinking of of the of the uh, of the Indians, you get this inherent sense and I'll read you I'll read you this quote because I find it I find it. it's a fascinating it's almost like a fascinating two voices at once kind of quote. So this is this is happening in 1539. This is in what is probably modern day Alabama. Hernando de Soto had gone all the way through Florida up through the Carolinas and back down through Alabama and Georgia and he meets this chieftain, Tuscaloosa, who's an immense man. They say he's over sixteen inches taller than than the tallest Spaniard. And Tuscaloosa says to one of the Spaniards, quote, those who put themselves under a foreign yoke when they could live free, he regarded as very mean-spirited and cowardly. He and all his people protested that they would die 1,000 deaths to maintain their liberty and that of their country. Now, th- that's interesting because we're not hearing that from Tuscaloosa. He did not write that on a piece of, you know, birch bark, and we found it in some archive somewhere. This is being recapitulated by Spaniards who were actually writing in Spanish in the 16th century. In fact, this is written down by, by a historian named the, the Inca Garcilaso de la Vega. So the reason I say that this is like two voices in one is because what we're actually hearing is the Inca transcribing what he thought Tuscaloosa said. Mm-hmm. It's unlikely considering the linguistic barriers and the fact that they had to use one translator, like three languages. Three yeah, so so this this quote by Tuscaloosa, this Indian, is being being moderated and transmitted through the Spanish viewpoint. And so, what I find interesting: a, he may have said it directly that way, right? Although it's unlikely because, for one thing, he talked about the yoke of a of a foreign ruler. But a yoke is an animal term, you know, for oxen. They didn't even have animals back then in in North America, domestic animals. So it's unlikely he said that directly. He may have said something along those lines, which again goes back to your point about this is inherent, inherent. people understand Mm -hmm. liberty. But what I find more interesting is that the Inca Garcilaso de la Vega is writing in Spanish to a Spanish audience. And he knows, again, that that is going to be a message that they find resonant.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: That they would understand that somebody else would object to being put under the yoke of a foreign oppressor. Mm. And that they would die a thousand deaths to protect their liberty, right? Mm. So it's it's a fascinating sort of Möbius strip of of historical narrative.
0: Mm. I guess that's kind of Kant's categorical imperative in a way. It's just like do what do unto others what you don't like what you want done to you. That's kind of I guess liberty is always framed in that way. In the sense yeah. like you want to be free, and I guess maybe I'm, I'm not I don't know too much about objectivism. I'm not a huge Ayn Rand reader, but I'm assuming objectivists would also when they point to like there's just an objective um, case for liberty. It's just like why should you be free? Because I want to be free. You want to be free. Like, why should I refrain from hurting you? Because I want you to refrain from hurting me, right? So it's almost like this, yeah, I'm, again, I don't want to praise the objectivist mostly because I don't know what like that philosophy is about that much, but there's almost sounds in a similar way, just seeing like an objective, um, like human truth in the sense that's- Yeah, arising.
1: commonsensical, mm-hmm. right. Yeah, you know, they. You know, I don't know, frankly, much about objectivism myself either, but you know, I think my understanding of it is that they, they emphasize the fact that one's duties to one's fellow man is limited by, is, is much more narrowly limited mm-hmm. than maybe society at large tends to think. Once you think of social obligations and social duties, what one owes to someone else, I think they, they limited that mm-hmm. you know, far, far more. Um, so yeah, taking it back to Spain and, and taking it back to this, this very interesting moment between Indians who are living in what Locke would consider the state of nature. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously Locke, Rousseau, Hobbes, everyone is talking about the state of nature as a. you know, how is it that we develop political institutions? They always use the state of nature as their sort of baseline. And I think they're basically wrong. I mean, first mm-hmm. off, the state of nature may be a very difficult thing to find because even in this scenario in, in Alabama, you have Tuscaloosa, who's this enormous chieftain, and they actually, the Spanish turned the, the term, instead of a cacique, they called him a curaca, which means he's more like a, like a, like an overlord. Mm. The, the cacique was a term the Spanish used for like a, a local chieftain, but he was more like a regional hegemon.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, which is to say, you know, the Americas were not, were not this, this sort of uh, noble, savage, you know, Garden of Eden mm-hmm. either. He was very clearly using his power, Tuscaloosa was using mm-hmm. his power as a as a hegemon to exert influence and state pressures on otherwise free individuals. Mm-hmm. And and you know, the slavery was not was not limited to Africa or Eurasia in any way. Slavery was very endemic here. Mm-hmm. He had slave this Tuscaloosa had slaves of his own. They had brutal stories of, of them cutting the Achilles' heel on on mm-hmm. captured Capture people so they couldn't leave because mm. they were supposed to be slaved for life. This kind of thing. Um, all of that is to say that the Europeans are 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 wrestling with this moment. They're wrestling with themselves. The Spanish are wrestling with themselves. Their own harshest critics when it comes to when it comes to issues about the conquest. Um, again, Las Casas is a famous one, but very very many writers, including conquistadors themselves are criticizing the trajectory of the Spanish imperial project, saying this is not liberal mm. or it is not liberal enough. We need to behave better. Mm. And as part of the reason, again, as part of my my the drum that I beat, is that we as Ang- Anglo speakers tend to fall victim to what is called the black legend about Spanish history, mm. in which we as, you know, again, it's the sort of oversimplification of the Inquisition, it's the oversimplification of this sort of late medieval they're they're only interested in crown and glory and gold and all that stuff it's just it's just not very accurate or fair um, and part of the black legend that we have the sort of dark legend of Spanish conquest is actually a result of the Spaniards themselves being their own harshest critics going on the record and saying this terrible thing happened in this particular place and it shouldn't have happened you know and these these stories these stories of violence and and of of trampling on Indian rights and, and of illiberalism more generally gets transmitted into England, mm. sort of as a as a as a concerted propaganda campaign. Mm. Because this is, of course, in the height of the of the religious wars, and anything bad that Catholics could be said to be doing was was just fodder for the mm. Protestants in mm-hmm. England and so forth. And but we haven't really turned loose of that as English speakers. Um, I think our our simplified narratives are actually a reflection of that. Black legend, which actually comes from the Spanish criticism of themselves.
0: Hmm. So again, I guess that goes back to the point where you don't necessarily need a deep tradition of liberty. Just normal people uh, going about their day experiencing oppression firsthand or maybe even being the oppressors themselves can just shock the human conscience in a way that just says, wait, hold up. Like we need we need to rethink this a little bit. Maybe perhaps um, human rights are a good thing, for example. so let, I want to go back to Cervantes because you, you brought him up sure. r- briefly and you said that his experience came from Turkish enslavement. Can you talk a little bit more about that?
1: Yeah, um, he had actually served in the Battle of Lepanto, which is a very famous naval engagement um, in 1571. He, he was actually leading a, a skiff of 12 men in a, in a boat and was wounded, in fact, lost the use of his left arm and his left hand entirely. So hopefully he was a right, right-handed writer. Or we may never heard of Cervantes if he hadn't been. Um, so yeah, he was actually swept up. I forget the exact details. In 1575, he was swept up in in some kind of Mediterranean engagement, and hauled in chains to an Ottoman slave camp, and was and was enslaved there for five years. It's a long time. Um, and he was actually ended up being. Um, the exact term, but basically freed and purchased by Trinitarians. It's kind of this semi-religious organization dedicated to purchasing or or swapping prisoners from you know in this sort of moment between Islam and Christ, you know Christianity, uh, which which frankly had been going on for eight hundred mm-hmm. years prior to that. And in fact, much of much of what we see in the Spanish conquest is actually more than anything just a recapitulation of the very very long tension between it, within Iberia of, of the Moorish invasions of Iberia in 711 and, and the Re- Reconquista, the sort of final conquest of the Iberian Peninsula in 1492, which was the big thing in the year. You know, the, the fact that Columbus discovered the Americas was almost a footnote in Spanish history. The, mm-hmm. For them, the big thing was this was, this was the, the triumph of Christianity against Islam. And so that, that sets much of the sort of tenor of the, of the conquest of of the Americas reconquista and conquest are the
0: one and the same mm. and then you mentioned how um he basically had a big liberal following you mentioned the sort of criticisms of the of oppression coming from the Americas from the people on the ground uh, rep- basically the arm of the spanish government so why why didn't uh, spain really have any sort of liberal revolution until i guess recently um you know th- there is the whole uh, Republicans versus the, I forgot like, the Spanish civil war. I think it was like socialists on one side, mm-hmm. fascists on the other. So why didn't, why didn't these ideas ever come to bear? Why was it always just more authoritarian government until recently? Yeah,
1: that's a, that's a fine question. And I, I can't pretend to have the answer.
0: Um, I would, I would,
1: I would peer at the edges of the answer of that, which is I think much of the problem stems from the fact that despite The Spanish grasp of some of the principles of what we now consider the liberal sort of project, like human dignity, human rights, rule of law, they were not very good when it came to markets. Mm. Um, They were they were very micromanagerial about practically everything related to commerce. If you wanted to sell a horse in Cuba, you needed to have a special certificate from at least the governor, if not the crown itself. For doing this, and, and you see, you know, the research I do is just replete with these kinds of constraints on free enterprise. Mm. So I think if if I had to just pick something out of there, that to me seems like the biggest. That's that's one leg of the stool that never made it, mm-hmm. right? That that's all the other things don't really work unless you can also combine it with free enterprise. Mm. You know, allow you know, getting the state away from managing managing the economy. Which frankly didn't happen in England either until you know you know well after Smith mm-hmm. and, and arguably not even today. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but 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 that you know it is a matter of degree, and I think that probably goes as far as anything to explain why Spain ultimately became the old man of Europe and ultimately became irrelevant in the sort of Enlightenment and the and Industrial Revolution.
0: Mm. And I guess this I'm not too much of an expert on Spain today, but it seems like their economy is not exactly you know it's not a prospect it's not a very free economy, say like the UK and to an extent, and obviously not as free as America. So you, I'm assuming that tradition of human rights are fine, but the, the economy is a different story. It's still, it's, I'm sure it's still sticks around today.
1: I think so. I mean, one one might argue that that is sort of the malaise that affects all of the Southern European states, whether it's Portugal, to Italy, to Greece, and so mm-hmm. forth. Um, they all suffer from the same kind of Economic problem, as opposed to the to the north. Um, so that may be that may be the case. Maybe some sort of latent vestigial. The know. weather's so nice; they don't really need to work. Yeah, you know, it's like <laughs> that's, that's a convincing argument for that too. Um, so I don't know. I, you know, oddly enough, I actually know relatively little about modern Spanish history. For me, I'm looking at American history from the perspective of the Spanish conquest, mm. right? Um, so I'm not interested in Spain as such. I'm more interested in how it is that we came to be what we became, understanding the sort of deep Spanish roots of that initial that initial contact moment between Native America and and old Europe.
0: Mm. So kind of wrapping this all up, what do you because you said a lot about Spain and I think there's a lot of universal concepts that really came out of that. So what do you think us as, you know, liberals in the West, liberals around the world, mm. I guess I could say, um, classical liberals. Classical liberals, liberals. liberals yes, watching. <laughs> mm-hmm. especially in the American context. <laughs> yeah, right? um, obviously, we, we love to study English history, love to study English political economy. What should we do when it comes to Spanish history? Like, what lessons should we draw from it? Where should we, um, like, how should we incorporate it into kind of like the pantheon of liberty-oriented works?
1: Yeah, another, another fine question to which I don't have an immediate answer. Um, i all I have is is a suspicion that by more fully understanding sort of our heritage and, and and choosing in advance consciously not to put blinders on when it comes to traditions outside of the Anglophone boundaries that we will learn things that we will learn things that can be applied today about how to about how to make sure that the uh the conditions for the flourishing of liberty can be as strong as they can be, mm. right? Look look for historical failures, look for historical successes, and just be more historically aware as we as we move forward and not fall
0: victim to these oversimplifications. Mm. Well, I never thought I'd be so fascinated and inspired by uh, Spanish history. It's obviously been, I think, over 10, 10 12, 15 years, maybe since I've uh, touched a history book that's talked about Spanish history. Um, before we wrap up, I'm actually very curious, since you're one of the few Uh, people at AIER who's uh, served in some branch of the military. I mean, Mm -hmm. you were at the Air Force Academy. So I was wondering, um, I guess, yeah, did you do anything when you got out of it? What was your, did you have a little story to tell? Did you you think it affects the way you think right now?
1: Yeah, um, I think it did. I served 10 years in the Air Force total. Did a tour in Afghanistan and other places. It I will say this i've I've noticed amongst the rest of my classmates from the air force academy and and in my career with it as an officer that libertarianism is strong within the the american military anyway Mm. and i don't and that's that wasn't something i was even aware of when i was in the military i just look back on it now and i think part of that reason if there is a reason is that when you're when you're living within the belly of leviathan Mm -hmm. like there's no more like a liberal institution than the, than the military. Mm -hmm. When you live in that, you begin to generate a skepticism about the power of planning and centralized command and so forth. In fact, one of the things that makes modern American military so relatively effective as compared to say to the Russian system Mm -hmm. is that it learned quite early on to be relatively unhierarchical, to make sure that we had an NCO class that was able to, that was able to execute orders in a diffuse and and uh, a non authorized way, like they could, they could have the power of, of their own choices, um, decentralized execution, they call it. So I think that's one lesson that sort of stuck with me, just the observational experience of, of living within a, a command and control society, mm-hmm. just the limits of, of how far command and control actually can go effectively. So
0: I'd, I'd say that's one big takeaway. And what what part of the Air Force did you specifically serve in?
1: I kind of did everything. I actually started out in in the pilot training path. I was slated for a Euro-NATO joint jet pilot training, Mm F-16s. I had ultimately ended up with four hours, but my eyes, unfortunately, went bad on, (laughs) and uh, as is often the case, with with aspiring pilots. And so I went into acquisitions and flight line maintenance, and then on my way out of uh, the Air Force career, I went into the combat rescue officers or special operations side of the house through the pipeline selection program and so I got to see quite a broad spectrum of what what the military can do, but maybe more importantly what it can't do mm. um, and I, th- I think that's been a been a, a lasting a lasting recollection and I think you know again, bringing it back to the spanish i think it it also oddly generates a very strong a very strong appreciation for the principles of human dignity, which again is something that I find over and over again in the Spanish context is a just, it's very important. You can't really be a liberal or classical liberal if you don't start with the idea of individual human dignity as the as the touchstone, as the foundational block for all the rest of the project to be
0: built on. Paul Schwanneson, AIER AER graduate fellow. Thank you for joining us on the show today.
1: Hey, thanks a lot. It was very fun.